Hello and welcome to this extra special bonus episode of Cultural Capital coming at you in the thick of the Melbourne International Film Festival. I'm Anders Furs. I'm Eloise Ross. And Andy Hazel is currently at the cinema, but he will be chiming in with his thoughts and feelings on films throughout our discussion of what we've seen so far, our highlights of the festival, things to maybe book into and avoid. A lot of these films that we'll be talking about have their second screening still to come. Eloise, it's day five of this year's festival. Let's start at the very top with the film that won the Palm d'Or Award at this year's Cannes Film Festival. I'm talking, of course, about Hirokazu Koreeda's Shoplifters. I just saw Shoplifters and so I'm still kind of on a high, although I don't know if you could call it that. I'm still kind of just zoning out in the realm of Shoplifters. So this is a film um, that I knew very little about apart from the fact that I like Coriator's films and I know who he is and I knew that it had won the Palm Door and been somewhat of a shock, I think we could say. Mm. Uh, This film is essentially about a motley crew of people living in a city in Japan. It's unspecified. Is it unspecified? It might be Tokyo. Um, yeah, it's there's no real geographic yeah. markers, are there? I don't know. Anyway, they're kind of a close-knit family, but there's repeated throughout that they've chosen their family. And it's a, you know, a very loving group, in a sense. And they just kind of go about living their daily life, occasionally shoplifting to survive and occasionally getting through um, in other ways. But I found this very a very remarkable film, very simple, simply told and very gentle in its emotion, very gentle in its portrait of what these people do to get along. There's obviously some portrayal of uh, like illegal behaviour and maybe morally questionable behaviour in this film, but none of it is judgmental at all. Mm. And knowing what I do about Coriator's filmography, this is like a treatment that he has quite often to his subjects where the audience has no means to feel any malice towards the characters no matter what they're doing and i think that that's really lovely what do you think anders yeah i agree i mean that's the interesting thing about this film is it's sort of the uh main sort of narrative event that happens is that this uh um this sort of found family i guess they find this girl who's been sort of seemingly abandoned and uh, it's quite a cold night and they sort of take her in for the night and then it becomes clear that she's, you know, her parents... Uh, it, it takes her parents a while to file a missing persons complaint. Um, oh, they don't even. Doesn't don't she even, get do they? filed? gets filed by the school or something? Yeah, yeah, you're from? right. Anyway, it takes them a while mm. to work out that she's... Anyway, so there is this moral dilemma in the film about is this child just uh, abduction justified or not? But Coriata, I think, is much more interested mm. in what drew them together yeah, it's what, not about the moral yeah, dilemma really not, or um, that you know they presented. might be doing the wrong thing it's, yeah it is it's just presented but the focus is on how this makeshift family feels towards each other it's very much about the dynamics of this yeah. group of people a lot of that um, taking the form of meals together yes. eating <laughs> is a wonderful uh, motive in this film yeah yeah that's true and 
um, I really wanted some noodles afterwards. But I guess that's, you know, somewhat of a lighthearted comment. I mean, I guess on the surface, I kind of think about, thought about this, I recognised it early on as something like an Oliver Twist story. Mm. You know, the makeshift um, family, people who go and just try and survive together, where you sense that there's a real bond between, you know, the leader of the group and then the you know his kind of crew or what have you not that it's necessarily that dynamic and there is more to it but if you look at the characters you have those you know essential few laid out there and that's a really strong story and something that i think could be told over and over again Mm. Um, but putting this setting is really strong yeah i completely agree i thought the performances were excellent particularly the child actor who plays this girl who is um who joins uh this family dynamic um mm. and the other kid the uh teenage the boy son. yeah yeah or yeah. well, the early i think it's 13 12 on the yeah. cusp of teenagehood um and his was a fascinating character because what's interesting i think in this film is this sense of impermanence to to what they're doing like there is a sense that this can't sustain itself this family dynamic um, they all due, wanted to. But they all yeah, want, yeah, but exactly. They yeah. all wanted to, but, you know, due to their economic circumstances, I guess you could say, due to these larger forces beyond these individuals, um, it sort of feels inevitably like it's not going to last forever. So there mm. is a bittersweet nature to um, a lot of that hanging out that I found really interesting. Yeah. That I connected to in a strong way. Yeah, that's true. And I think that. I found a similarity between this and its, I guess, its narrative progression and also its emotional intensity with Coriator's earlier film, Nobody Knows, from 2004, which is one that I saw uh, on the big screen, I think, last year. But I hope it is available for the rest of you to seek out. I highly recommend it. It's another story about kind of an older brother who looks after his younger siblings. Maybe there's five of them or four or five of them after uh, uh, his mother or their mother gets kind of bored or distracted. We don't really know what happens to her. But at the end of the day, this older brother has to look after his young siblings. And it's a story, very quickly becomes a story about children fending for themselves. And what's interesting about this, that film, if you compare it to this one, is that there's no real blame placed on the the guardian figures. Mm. Nothing mm. where you can really... No attempt to say that they were doing anything with any malice or to say that they essentially did anything wrong or that we can blame them for the events that occurred. But the focus is rather on the children. And it's all about the children. And even though we can, of course, step back and make our own judgments about what, whether what adults did was right or wrong, the focus was on the children. And I find that really like tender attention, something that is used or not used, but can be found in a lot of like Francois Truffaut films. Um, and he was, of course, famous for his really, really tender portraits of mm. children's emotions when I guess so much of cinema is about what adults feel because mm. we can access that. And so I find that really interesting. I think that's probably the the thing that I love the most about Coriator. Yeah, cool, cool. And to this film, really, uh, as it goes on, I think it gets even more interested in that. Of, yeah, right through to the end. Right through um, the end, yeah. So, yeah, look, I, I thought it was a wonderful, wonderful beguiling film. I really recommend it as a, I, I think, not that I've seen any of the films that were in competition, but I mean, if, why not award the Palm Door to this? I've, I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so, I mean, surprising, I think, in, mm. in its own sense. 
So, Andy, um, we know you're not here with us right now, but hopefully you can chime in with some of your thoughts. Um, Yeah, let us know what you think. Thank you, Elo. Uh, Yeah, well, I've already spoken about shoplifters twice now, so I will keep my thoughts to a minimum, but I love the points that you were making about it not being about the moral judgment that we would so readily apply, or maybe other directors would want us to apply to a story like this, and how wonderful creator is it just observing these behaviors and just letting things unfold at this very natural pace that's one of the things i really loved about it It was just this quiet introduction and this total lack of judgment that i think is essential in the way that he manages to get those sorts of uh, performances that you and anders were both talking about uh i guess the only other things i would think to mention was seeing this side of japan i think it's the same thing that ties in with nobody knows which i love as well which is also just looking at the way that society might abandon uh, the it lost, maybe has lost its humanity on its way to being economically successful, and the social tensions and problems that place that plague Japan at the moment. Its aging population, its declining economy, the way that it's kind of being left behind by China and all this sort of stuff. I think that's a really interesting aspect to the story as well. That these people are living on the fringes. That people like in nobody knows are happy to kind of help out these children who they can see are in need. Uh, and so, in a way, a few members of society seem to become part of this extended family in a very minor way. But then overall, without spoiling anything, these people, these outsiders, are kind of abandoned by Japanese society as it marches on uh, in its sort of capitalistic individualism or something, I suppose. Anyway, yeah, I was thrilled to have caught it at Cannes and to have seen it win. And um, it's definitely one of my highlights of the year. And as far as I know, both other screenings have sold out, but I would not be surprised if it becomes a surprise screening on one of the last days of the festival. So I'd definitely keep an eye out for that. Mom is dead. Is dead okay? Of course he is. You lied to me. His pride got hurt. That happens sometimes. I'm hurt. He's been out of work before. And he always finds his way. So, Eloise, the festival started five days ago with Paul Dano's directorial debut. It's an adaptation of Richard Ford's novel, Wildlife. What did you think? I think that the opening night film at the MIFF is always at something of a disadvantage because of the surrounds that um, are going on, like people getting drunk, lots of speeches, which, you know, I do love and are important, but there is something of, you know, an other importance to the opening night event other than it just being the film. Yeah. Um, But having said that, I do think that I am, I guess, educated enough in film viewing to be able to state that I think that this was a fairly lacking film overall and that it wasn't just the um, audience or the festivities that kind of made me not so keen on it. I think it was a fairly dull melodrama, to be quite honest with you, and I was really excited for it. It looked stylish. I love period films. I am really into Paul Dano as a screen presence. Mm. The actors in the film I really admire as well. But it was basically fairly unadventurous, I thought, and just kind of ticked all of the boxes. Uh, I actually, unfortunately, could pick every single thing that was going to happen, 
not only in the narrative progression, but also in a lot of the camera angles, in a lot of the like cuts where they were going to occur, because it was just kind of so rudimentary in being in this melodrama. Um, what do you think? I agree. So, um, yeah, I just found it quite a dull portrait of a, a marriage that's sort of falling apart, but that I just could not really uh, bring myself to care about. So, Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal star as this mm. married couple who clearly have some problems. Gyllenhaal's character is made redundant early on in the film, and he decides to go join these firefighters and fight this sort of raging wildfire nearby. So he ships off out of the house for a sort of undetermined period of time until mm. until the first rains fall is how he describes mm. when he'll be back, leaving Carrie Mulligan's character in charge of um, their son, uh, Ed, played by Ed Oxenbold, an Australian actor. Mm. So that's sort of the general premise of the film. I just found it quite dour, which is a word that I have, don't really <laughs> use very often, but I thought was accurate for this film the metaphors particularly this mm. fire yeah i felt felt very to me overread and as if they were sort of striving for a profundity that really wasn't or a resonance that i just I was did like, not connect is this with trying to connect with like contemporary times and make us who are you know going through a period of climate disaster where there are fires all of the time is it trying to make this film resonate with us right now or is it just being used as this metaphor or is it a particular kind of device that's chosen to give Jake Gyllenhaal and his, you know, bruised masculinity and out? I mean, I found that the premise of this film was basically Jake Gyllenhaal saying, I'm the master of this family and if I can't earn money and if I can't get a job because he gets fired at the beginning of the film, then I'm going to go and rather than my wife be the main breadwinner, I'm going to go and do something to prove my masculinity. You know, that kind of setup is very common in uh, in film history, basically, and also in all forms of other media. Mm-hmm. But I just found it very weak and very underplayed. And if you've got to do that, you need something really, really powerful. And I just couldn't feel like – I couldn't even get angry – Kerry Mulligan gets angry at Jake Gyllenhaal for doing that. I couldn't get angry at him. I just couldn't... There wasn't enough really play-up of it cinematically for, for that to have really have resonance with me. I agree. I completely agree. And I do agree with you, too, on the predictability of mm. of, of what happens. And also, there are some shots that just go for an indeterminably <laughs> long period of time where particularly this one shot where Oxenbold's character is walking around the house and he sort of discovers this thing about his mother... That you know already and uh, if you've been paying attention and it's just this staggeringly long uh, pan across a room mm. and then back to him sort of this dawning realisation and it was just I mean the realisation came for me you know minutes before so yeah. it was just there was a lot of that going on I, uh, I a shame because I really did want to like it and I love Paul Dano as a, as a screen presence but yeah. um yeah, well, having said that, this. I overheard some people talking about it at the film I was at tonight, and they seem to enjoy it. Some people have um, been, so, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I feel like some of those shots were indeed too long, but maybe that was partly, you know... The yeah, the circumstances of the screening it. too, sure, yeah. sure, sure. Yeah. And it was a bizarre screening in many ways. Yeah. The audience, yeah, it was quite interesting. Um, but that's a whole other topic. But, yeah... Yeah. Yeah. So that was the start of the festival for me, and it wasn't so great. But you know, the ce- celebrating the beginning of myth is always yeah. fun in other ways. So. Yeah. 
man called. And he wants to see you right away. State Senator Albert Vato. His teenage daughter's missing. What's the lead? He got an anonymous text with an address. I've heard of these places. They said you were brutal. I can be. I want you to hurt them. What was your first highlight of the festival? My first highlight was You Were Never Really Here, mm. Lynn Ramsey's film, that we in Australia, in this backwater, it seems, have heard so much about because it's screened, it's even had releases elsewhere. Joaquin Phoenix, the main character, has been talked about as getting, I don't know, Oscar attention, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. But I was just so taken in by this film. I mean, I kind of knew I would be. But that's, I guess, a great pleasure when I think about something like wildlife, which I wanted to be taken into, but was not. Yeah. So, yeah, You Were Never Really Here struck me on so many levels. Emotional, like cinematic, oral, the sound design was amazing in terms of its um, editing, the, you know, cutting to kind of intensify, but also brutalize your emotional involvement with the narrative and characters. Like it just did so many things that were that were right, that were perfect. It's sort of hard to overstate how um, central sound is to this film. Mm. Like, the audio design is incredible because the film is... I mean, I took it as, like, almost fused with Joaquin Phoenix's character's consciousness or his psyche. Yeah. So it's you're very much experiencing things in the way that he sort of is. And that, in, in New York City, involves a lot of interesting sounds. Uh, not just the music choices, but all of that diegetic sound. And I just thought there was such a confident mm. um, uh, confident manipulation of all of that that I was sort of floored by the right. end of the film, yeah. by the sound. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which doesn't, I don't really, it's not something that I often pay such singular attention to. Mm-hmm. I always pay a lot of attention to mm. it um, and it can be completely overdone for instance in a film that I may talk about in f- a few seconds maybe not <laughs> like Let the Corpses Tan the film by Elaine Catet and Bruno Forzani I thought the sound effects and intentionally so but were just so completely overdone that they lost all emotional effective thematic relevance because there were too many of them, but mm. and they they weren't even aligned with special events or feelings anymore. They were just uh, at every moment there was a sound chosen, a, a you know a foley chosen or something to to suggest the camera was doing something. But mm. in in you were never really here. They were there was they were so carefully chosen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that they still had that. And Lynn Ramsey as well. I don't know if you've seen Morvan Keller. No. Uh, her earlier film from early in the 2000s um but that soundtrack is stunning i mean this is a musical kind of you know composition but that's like amazing so she's really an incredible filmmaker um not particularly prolific but yeah she makes these films though yeah amazing yeah so she hasn't made a lot which is a real shame and i think you know maybe now that she's got this attention in with this u.s film with joaquin phoenix having the actor being spoken about. I mean, her last film, I suppose, was We Need to Talk About Kevin. I mean, with Tilda Swinton, who is also a big name, but I feel like this is getting some different traction because it is New York, um, because there is more attention being given to women filmmakers right now and people are getting... People are making a more concerted effort to appreciate things 
in women's films that they might not have otherwise found in this particular time. So for sure, very um, quite a dark, d- twisted film in a way. So uh, Phoenix plays this. Um, he's sort of like this Iraq War veteran. I was yeah. taking. Um, uh, you sort of get glimpses of this in flashback, and he's sort of this vigilante in New York City, um, lives with his mum, has a weird relationship with his elderly mother, and basically he he's sort of this gun for hire who goes in and extracts children from uh, sort of pedophilia rings, I guess. Is. Yeah, there's a bit of commentary on sex trafficking and stuff, yeah, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it does get quite dark and disturbing, and some of that violence is... Shocking. Extreme, yeah. Um, yeah. Also, I found quite confronting, viscerally confronting, was the um, sort of suffocation and self-asphyxiation motif in this mm. film. He sort of likes to, to drown. And, and, and there's this one particular moment where he goes into a lake, fills his coat with pebbles to, like, sink, mm. and then he lets them go to, like, swim up to the surface but you can tell he's like trying to hold his breath just in time and when I was watching that I could feel myself holding my breath like it was quite extraordinary Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that physical impact that this film had on me is just purely physically yeah which is quite amazing Um, and that is you know that particular sequence is and maybe all of them in that regard are very beautiful I mean there was a dreamlike quality to that where you can kind of think you know, I mean, we could compare it to maybe the ending of the piano where you think, is this a dream or is this reality? What is what is happening right now? You know, it's extraordinarily beautiful as well. Yeah. So there is some weird kind of dissonance going on in that sequence. But yeah, very, very beautiful and so powerful as well. Yeah. So big recommendation from both of us. Uh, has Andy seen this? I believe that Andy saw it, yeah. He was um, away for the weekend, but very keen to get back into it. So Andy, please... Tell us what you thought. Thanks, Ello. Uh, yes, I have seen this, and like you, it is my highlight of the festival so far. Uh, I was really annoyed that it took so long <laughs> to see this film. Um, it kept being kind of threatening to be released and played, and then it didn't happen, and then Sydney got it first. So, yeah, it was a thrill to finally get around to seeing this particular version of it, which was different to the one that debuted in Cannes May 2017. Uh it's it's strange because at first I was kind of not really taken into the story that they were telling. Like I thought, my God, this is beautifully put together and Lynn Ramsey really knows what she's doing and the sound design is incredible. The cinematography is remarkable. Every performance is beautifully pitched. But I couldn't really get my head around the quality of the story. I was really kind of thrown as to why this was quite as interesting as it was. And then gradually as you start seeing just – how complicated Joaquin Phoenix's character is and you're mainly instructed to that through sound. It isn't really apparent early on. Then it starts becoming really, really powerful. It's gritty subject matter. It's difficult. It kind of should be to be able to justify the way that the story is being told using this these cinematic devices. Johnny Greenwood's score is incredible. Thomas Townend's cinematography is remarkable. The editing by Joe Beanie just blew me away as well, which I think is really a hidden quality of this film. I'm a little sorry to see that it not doing better at the box office. I really think that it is worthy of awards attention, but I feel like everyone's just going to kind of forget about it by the time that season comes around. Of course, not many people really care about it as much as me. I also really appreciated the running time at a pithy 90 minutes. It's really nice to be able to recommend a film that doesn't require two plus hours sitting down and focusing. 
So that was You'll Never Really Here, and it's a big thumbs up from the Cold Cap crew. Another confronting film, but for different reasons, would be Jean-Luc Godard's The Image Book. I'm so excited about seeing this. Um, Now, this is uh, extreme cinema in one sense, in that it is, I mean, it's just, it's a clip show in a way. He takes footage from all sorts of um, films, from home recordings. His dog, which you may remember if you saw his 3D film, Goodbye to Language. I do recall his dog, yes. And he he loved uh, shooting his dog. Well, the dog's back in this film as well. Um, I did see some Twitter commentary saying that a lot of this reuses footage from Histoire du Cinema, which Mm. is, I haven't seen that, so I can't um, comment authoritatively on that, but that's I mean, it's wonderful. Um, uh, I love Histrado yeah. Cinema. Okay, yeah. But, um, I mean, if he uses it, like Histrado Cinema is or what a 10-hour kind of experiment. Exactly. So how much does he really reuse? It's okay if he... In my, I mean, I haven't seen it, so I can't say. But I yeah. think it's okay for artists to, to reuse things themselves like and, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree. You know, I mean, he's a filmmaker, I guess, quote-unquote. But artists do this all the time, so... Godard's his career's spanned decades and decades and decades. And, yeah, in his late career, he's sort of turned to these interesting experiments in form, in film, in language, in image-making. It's sort of hard to talk about this properly without sounding like a raving lunatic. But um, (laughs) this is an exhausting, noisy, very noisy... The audio... So um, before we went into the film, we were forewarned that... The audio um, in the film was the director's intention and that we shouldn't uh, feel like we need to complain about the audio system (laughs) because this is all intentional. And there is some trippy working with sound and cutting, uh, intercutting audio um, tracks. The way that um, his previous film played around with 3D polarised, I think it's sort of somewhat akin to that. Um, yeah, and also his earlier film, I think, film socialism. Mm, um, mm. Sorry, excuse my poor the pronunciation. The yeah, uh, that screened at MIF, and I don't know if the first screening had this warning, but the subsequent screenings definitely had a. The subtitles are meant to be eclectic warnings yes. because I think people were coming back and saying these subtitles are incomplete or, um, you know, yeah. it seems like your subtitle file is corrupted or something. Yeah, so yeah. that they had warnings saying he likes to play with language. He, he likes to play with this idea of, I guess, experience and understanding. Yeah. And it's not all <laughs> based on language, you know. I mean, that's his, I guess, exactly, one of his, exactly. Um, raison d'etre. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the the language of images or the meaning of images um, and sound um, it can be just as important. And he does the same thing here. Not everything is translated, mm. although you do get a general sense of, of um, what the dialogue is. And he narrates quite a bit of it himself with this really interesting abrasive voice. But look, the best way I can describe it is it felt like a claustrophobic overbearing reduction of the 20th century into some weird cacophony of sight and sound and it felt like it reset certain things for me. It's sort of hard to talk about it beyond that. I I, I might actually go back to see it again because I, at the time watching it was quite challenging and I've got to say I felt... It, it sort of really hit me, like, physically, again, it, it sort of hurt my eyes after a while. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's this really distinctive representation of a lot of stuff. 
I mean, that's great. That's like what it's, he yeah. wants, right? And that's what he's yeah, doing yeah. is... Yeah. It's, he's not just presenting a narrative or an experience anymore. He's, he's exploring ideas and um, pra- exactly. you know, practicing his theories. And if you want to go and see it again... That's awesome. I mean, something like you were never really here, I want to go and see again because I guess kind of like Acute Misfortune, which I spoke about on the last podcast and is screening at MIF, it's kind of a story told in fragments where you can collect certain things but only briefly and then they get emotional, they have emotional weight, but the emotional weight changes yeah. down the track. Yeah. Um, same thing with the Lynn Ramsey film yeah. and with this Goddard film. I'm sure it's not about emotional resonance, but it's about something else. Yeah, yeah, ideas. Yeah. Or yeah. Is there an argument? I don't know. I, I don't know. But um, look, I really, really loved it. And mm-hmm. if it's his, if it ends up being his final film, it'd be very interesting. Uh, Swan Song. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, very. Yeah, I. It, it's not. It's obviously not for everyone. A lot of people hated it. Yeah. And there I've were heard. were yeah. walkouts. Um, but no, there was something I found deeply enthralling about the whole thing. If also discombobulating. Okay. Maybe that's what I found in for a about. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm super keen. Maintenant, il faut les tuer tous. The other film that I didn't really get into was Let the Corpses Tan, the mm. um, Ketet and Fasani film. So they're a filmmaking team and they're here. All of their all their other films, Amea and The Strange Colour of Your Body's Tears, which is a, like exquisite title, by the way, a screening mm. um, and a selection of their short films. But this film was just too much. It was kind of one note. The sound was too much. The editing was too much. Basically... Almost everything was a close-up and the camera never moved. Everything was like a still frame. Um, Stuff moved within the camera frame, but the camera never moved. And for me, I was just like, move the bloody camera. It was too (laughs) much. You know, I feel like this was maybe kind of a short film idea that just went for too long. Um, And that in a short film um, format, and I haven't seen any of their short films, but I have heard that they are very, very good short filmmakers. Maybe this would have been better, but for me, um, at this particular time, it was it was kind of too much for me. But yeah, so that was kind of an unfortunate film mm. that I was very excited about because you know it was kind of called a crazy western. Mm. Sounds very up my alley, but but not so much. The films that I was looking forward to the most this year, well, not the most, but one of them, was a film called The Fugue, directed by Agnieszka Szmozinska, a Polish filmmaker, who a number of years ago, maybe it was even last year, had a film called The Lure, which I think if you can't recall it, you might be able to recall a film described as the crazy mermaid musical oh. film. <laughs> Um, now, I saw yes. it at Sundance. Uh, I didn't see it at MIFF, but it did screen and got quite a bit of attention. I remember being kind of baffled by it 
not necessarily really even enjoying the lure or having positive memories of it, but being stunned by it. And I can't forget it. It's unforgettable. And so I sort of thought, well, in that extent, even if I'm not even sure anymore whether I loved the film or didn't, the fact that I can still remember it means that it's got to have done something, right? Mm. So I went to see uh, The Fugue and I was stunned by it. Mm. So it's kind of, I guess, less insane more sellable than the crazy mermaid musical film (laughs) Um, in a sense that it's about a woman at first named Alicia who has what is described as dissociative fugue Uh, and she does she can't remember anything we don't know how she ended up where she is um, but there's kind of this weird sequence at the beginning where she goes on reality television and she's sold as this strange creature who has a weird um, memory loss and then she gets f- discovered and taken back to her family and goes through the process I suppose of being taught her history and remembering it on her own terms and it's a wonderful exploration I think of um, her experience now I it sort of turns out that there was maybe one instance that kind of brought this on for her I don't know if I can say too much or if I want to, but it seemed very, very, very realistic to me, the mm. way the way that her experience was treated. And it sounds quite melodramatic and sad, but it's actually quite funny. There are a few moments, particularly the opening sequence, my friends and I, um, and maybe some other people in the cinema as well, were laughing at the very beginning and then kind of you know you get this sense that that we're all here for a good time essentially in the end and so I think that after this strange exploration of like emotional trauma but also lightheartedness and really getting to understand the characters that it really earns the ending that it goes towards but what I wanted to identify particularly was the performance by the woman who plays Alicia named Gabriela Muscala I think there's a better Polish pronunciation in there somewhere. But anyway, she is the main actor and also was the screenwriter for the film. Anyway, she absolutely blew me away. I just could not, even when there were other things going on in in the frame, could not take my eyes off her for the whole thing. Her eyes were so magnetic. She barely smiled and yet when she did it had such power and her expression was insane like just so I don't know even know how to describe it but it was so powerful and so full of feeling basically so full of loss because she was completely lost but also so full of feeling and and desire Um, and you just knew that she was what she was thinking even when she you know, didn't even know it or say it Mm. because she's this strange character who feels uncomfortable in her surrounds. And so it was just incredible. And I don't know what the song is, but I said this on Twitter. I think that it may be, I'm calling it early, has the best dance scene of all films. And this is something that we (laughs) play at MIF every year, best dance scene of the festival. I think that this film, The Fugue, has it. I will just say it's her and her husband dancing and I can't remember what the song is but I want to watch that particular scene just immediately because I loved it so much it was just such a kind of tonal shift and you knew that everything was just everything at this particular point in the film was working out perfectly anyway 
Fantastic. Well, that's screening again on the uh, in a couple of weeks on the 19th of August. The final day. Yeah. So I might book. Uh, well, I will book into that. I think, I think you should. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I don't know. I mean, this, as I said, is maybe more sellable than the Mermaid musical film, but <laughs> but still, maybe not quite that sellable that it yeah. will get a release in in Australia. But mm. anyway, I mean, we can hope, and maybe our podcast will have some influence on the distributors. But anyway, <laughs> if you're listening, uh, transmission. Yeah, but you should uh, um, you should go and see it. Yeah. No, I will. Um, speaking of dancing i just want to do a shout out to philippe matzenbacher and marcio reolon's hard paint which screened last night o senhor continua convivendo com a vítima eu abandonei a faculdade abandonou fui expulso o senhor tem carteira assinada faço uns bicos bicos no quê Portuguese film. Um, it's its second session is in a couple of days. Um, this has really grown on me. When I watched it at the time, I thought there were elements that I liked. I felt it meandered a bit too long. Basically, it's um, about this sort of uh, loner figure, teenager um, or, or early 20s um, guy who lives with his sister. His sister sort of leaves... Uh, leaves their city, leaves their apartment, leaving him sort of all alone and by himself. And he makes money by performing on webcam as like a sort of sexual striptease guy. And his sort of, what his trademark is the use of neon paint in his performances. So he wears neon paint, um, does all of this. Anyway, through um, his performance, he calls himself Neon Boy, he meets another performer who's copying his act and they decide to team up together and then through that they sort of start this relationship and he begins to sort of re-engage with the world after withdrawing and we sort of find out why he withdrew. I loved this film for many reasons, not least because aid the dancing and the movement so these webcam there's a lot of these cam scenes which are shot with you know the blue light and with this um dazzling paint but in that sort of grainy webcammy kind of quality mm-hmm. and it's actually kind of beautiful the way um those bodies move in that sort of environment i found it really you know just purely on an aesthetic level quite interesting and then also the film is obsessed with looking and not just through webcams but through their urban um life through you know people in apartments looking he's area in town he's in an apartment block that's sort of mostly vacated so he doesn't have many neighbors but when he goes out and about into the streets you see there's lots of sort of very almost self-conscious shots of figures in windows sort of watching him and other people on the street who he encounters looking at him too so this idea of being looked at is really interesting Mm -hmm. and particularly the queer approach to the idea of being looked at in particular i just found endlessly fascinating and it finishes with this uh, wonderful dance scene, which is Amazing. set to Anoni's uh, Drone Bomb Me, which is a wonderful song. So I, I, yeah, it's really great. I meandered a bit. And at the time I felt it was, you know, a bit too long, it's a two hour film. But, you know, 24 hours later, it's really grown on me. Yeah. So great. I love that film. Um, and briefly, I would also like to do a shout out to Eric Romer's 1984 film, Full Moon in Paris, which I saw as part of Miss Fantastic Fashion X Cinema 
program, which is a really well, I think Michelle Carey curated herself. Okay. Uh, yep. Really well curated. Well, you and I are going to see Joseph von Sternberg's Morocco. Yes, we are. Um, we are. Yeah. Um, to see that iconic uh, tuxedo. Um, but yeah, all of these films engage with fashion, but not uh, necessarily in the most obvious or. Um, yeah, they engage with fashion in very interesting ways, I guess. And this was a wonderful, very breezy, very witty film about a woman who has to choose. Basically, she has a house in the suburbs with a man who's like, well, on the way to becoming her husband. Um, she's also got this pied de in like downtown Paris. And she divides her time between the apartment in Paris and the home, the home right. and the man back home. And she's trying to work out, she's trying to navigate her life, really. And she can't, she's feels torn between the suburbs and the city so um it was just really witty really funny and the fashion was amazing she has one of these amazing um basket handbag things that were very big in the 80s uh, which i've discovered you can buy online for a mere 25 dollars so great guess who's already ordered a want to see you out there on the d floor <laughs> with my blue mesh bag <laughs> um yeah it was fantastic so yeah it's been a good myth so far Awesome. What are you particularly excited about coming up this week? Anything? I'm excited about seeing the Caribbean Film Collective new works on Friday. So this is a group, and I feel like I've seen some of their stuff at MIFF sometimes, but they're one of our first peoples who make films and um, occasionally get screened at MIFF. Or I remember them being really great and really engaging mm-hmm. and really beautiful stories. And then I'm seeing Transit, which is the new film by the Christian Petzold. And I imagine it's just going to be a really powerful film. The uh, blurb in the program describes it as a film about trans-European displacement that channels both Hitchcock and Casablanca. And I'm just like, what? (laughs) Like, I mean, obviously, sometimes program descriptions are full of shit, but um, it might be, you know, it might be quite something. So anyway, that's what I've got coming up. Fantastic. Um, I'm very excited about tomorrow night's screening of Paul Schrader's First Reformed. Yes. Which would be one of the buzziest films, I think, of the festival. One of the buzziest, I think. Yeah, I've um, luckily already seen it, as you know. Yeah, I can't wait to discuss more with you. Awesome. Um, Schrader being most well known, I guess, as the screenwriter of Taxi Driver. And then I'm really excited next Monday to be catching... Sai Ming Liang's virtual reality <gasps> debut. Oh, you reminded Deserto me. Bear. I have to book into that. I'm yes. really, really, really keen to see that. I'm really interested. It goes for 55 minutes. Um, and there aren't that... I mean, you know, there are a lot of sessions, but it's a finite kind of experience, right? Because only a few people can book in at once, I think. Yeah, so I should exactly. get onto that yeah. soon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would actually. Um, okay. So I'm... Uh, who knows what this will be like but apparently you know uh the program guy does make reference to the fact that he is a slow take filmmaker which i think would amazing. be amazing right for virtual alley. reality yeah. um and he's he's a real sort of premiere auteur so it's i find this stuff really exciting when virtual reality is deployed to create more interesting effects so very excited about that too uh, international shorts like cute misfortune and frederick wiseman all ahead as well frederick wiseman I'm just going to step in here to second Anders' anticipation of the Frederick Wiseman documentary Ex Libris about the New York Public Library. That's one of the films I'm most looking forward to, along with Lucrecia Martel's Zama, which has gotten rave reviews overseas. That's um, an Argentine movie uh, adaptation of a 1956 novel by Antonio Di Benedetto. It tells the story of a 
guy, a man called Diego de Zama, who is an 18th century administrator who is in service of Imperial Spain, who's in charge of running this particular colonial outpost. Uh, he's an Americano, so he's someone born in the Americas, not in Spain, so he thinks that he's been kind of left there because of this car, his uh, racial background. And so the film is kind of partly about him idling away with his meagre stipend and having these sorts of run-ins with locals and it, I don't know the description doesn't really sell it to me that much but everything that ever, I've read about this everybody's takes on this is like this is absolutely incredible and and the, you know the first movie for uh Lucrecia Martel since 2008 The Headless Woman which was a bit of a game changer too from what I gather um another film that I'm really keen to see is uh Happy as Lazaro which was a film that we mentioned a couple of episodes ago this is by Alice Roacher and it won Best Screenplay at Cannes, and this screenplay seems to be a study of Italian society through a sort of magical realist fairy tale. I've always got time for magical realism. It's something that I feel, when done well, is pretty much impossible to beat. Um, one final review, I saw the movie The World Is Yours, a French crime caper farce, extremely stylish, set in the Costa del Sol of Spain. Uh, it's probably going to get an, a big release, and I recommend that. It's just kind of a huge epic scale. It's really funny. It's a very strange Guy Ritchie-style case about a uh, heist, a really kind of downtrodden criminal who doesn't want to be a criminal, who's kind of pushed into it by his mother, and he's falling in love with this girl who's also a really great hustler. Uh, it's a lot of comedy. It's a lot of style. It's fantastic use of Toto's song Africa, which nobody needs to hear again, but they managed to do it, something new with it. And uh, the song Atlas by the band Battles, which it's, as soon as you hear that accompanying uh, highest, you're just like, why has nobody done this before? This is, of course, a really obviously great move. Um, that's uh, Romain Gavras film, and you may know him from making music videos for people like MIA and Jamie XX and Kanye West and Jay-Z. It's called The World Is Yours and you can probably catch it at a non-sold session at MIF or at a cinema. Thanks. And now back to Anders and Elo. You'll hear from us again before the end of the festival. You will. So please check in. Let us know what you've seen, if we've missed anything. If you strongly disagree with any of our opinions, you know, we love to have a little bit of banter. Yeah. So please let us know. This has been... Eloise and Anders and Andy has also been checking in. What are we calling ourselves? The cultural capital at MIF YOLO experience? Absolutely. That's it. That's, That's it, it in one. That's us. All right. Um, thanks for listening. See you around Melbourne. Bye. Bye.